and how they could go on for most of a fairly long life kidding themselves into saying that their real interest was growth and then be patiently willing to spend hour upon hour watching stocks go up and down. It wasn't because anyone was depending on them. It wasn't because of any need. It was simply that this inconsistency never, see, never meant anything. The individual never saw that far into the stone wall which was himself. And this situation, in one way or another, burdens many people. Another point we made here was patience. Now, patience is a virtue which is much debated these times. Many folks say patience is no good at all. What we need is dynamic impatience. But if we must have any impatience at all, I think we should turn it to ourselves and be impatient with ourselves for the stupid things we do. But broadly speaking, patience again is a letdown. It's this quietening down of the nature. The patient person is free from this tremendous impulse to force things. And this effort to force things is especially bad in religion. And the impatient people who are trying to force cosmic consciousness on themselves are not as few as we wish they were. The impatience to be like God or the impatience to be with God, although I have not observed too many people impatient to get there by way of death. They are always talking about death being the return to God, but no one seems to be in an awful hurry to get there. But cosmic consciousness, yes. All these great things, individuals, I know hundreds of them, that joined a movement or an organization, were there for eight weeks, did not become illumined, then immediately moved out and joined another one. Just, we've got to get there in a big hurry. Of course, they never got anywhere. An, imp an impatience in everything in life uh, breaks all probabilities of progress. So you see a whole series of related attitudes. Poise, peacefulness of internal life, patience. All these related attitudes have as their purpose to quiet us down. Realizing that the growth of the person comes when the false motions are relaxed. It is only when false motion ceases that true motion can be noted or be apperceived within the person himself. Until then, he is a victim of his own impatiences. The outer mind is forever in conflict with what might be termed the intuitive apperception. In psychology, we suspect that this is the reason why so many of the essential archetypal symbols come to man only in sleep. Sleep is the most patient moment in the average person's existence. It's the only time when he is not trying to press his own purposes on something or someone. And in this state of quietude, the internal archetypal patterns move through him. The moment he wakes in the morning and starts to be filled with his own purposes again, these dream experiences have a tendency to retire and may even be completely forgotten. But here is an important lesson, that in the relaxation and quietude of sleep, the individual receives something from within himself, whereas the rest of the time he is forcing something upon himself from the outside continuously. As long as this forcing continues, as long as he is under pressure, he is like a politician who is under the domination of some other politician. He is no longer able to act his own part, to be himself, and uh, must become merely a parrot for something that is not himself. So all these things point to the beginnings of an orderly approach to life. Now, most of chapter 5 is concerned with concentration, and that is the natural outcome of the points that we have been already uh, discussing. 
Concentration is actually the individual attempting to coordinate his own resources. Assuming, as we know, that the average person has a considerable number of related uh, mental and emotional patterns with which he works, he has a degree of versatility, and he is able to conjure up with his own mental activities innumerable ideas, beliefs, and opinions, or to envision innumerable objectives for himself or for others. The tendency of the mind, therefore, is to become addicted to the immediate pressures of the moment to throw energy in the direction of immediate interest. And whatever problem is at that moment most fascinating gets the attention. And then the next day a different pattern takes over and that gets the attention. And by degrees we sort of inch our way in a semi-backward motion through life like the proverbial crab, uh, dedicating our energy to the interest of each separate moment without any definite effort to relate these things or to pattern them or to put a purpose or a continuity into this mental activity. As a result, we may become jacks of all trades, which at a business level is not good because it means that we have a number of half-developed abilities. In the mental and emotional life, we have an innumerable number of unfinished ideas, some of which perish in the void, others return again to the subconscious, and others still linger along but without sufficient libido to ever develop anything. Against this type of person we have the so-called one-track individual who is usually a complete success and a terrible bore. The one-track individual who has narrowed himself in his interests in order to attain depth. So your individual who gets depth is narrow, and the individual who gets breadth is shallow. And this combination is everywhere obvious. The purpose of concentration is that the person who is beginning to appreciate value begins to know what he really wants to do or to be and who is particularly interested in the integration of his own life into a constructive pattern realizing that this interior integration is going to move into manifestation and make him a better adjusted person in this world also. This problem of concentration is the gathering up of energies otherwise to be wasted or lost, to achieve penetration like the focusing of light through a magnifying lens, by means of which the rays of the sun are brought to a point which gives them burning power. This concentration of uh, faculties and powers means that in some direction we begin to make essential progress. We know that this concentration is necessary to general achievement, but we do not realize that it is necessary to the particular integration of ourselves. The person who cannot concentrate at will is denied the strength of his own resources to the achievement of the ends which he desires. Most individuals who do try to concentrate achieve it through a sort of automatic addiction. A man like Edison could probably hardly ever get his mind off of his inventions and his formulas. He had become completely identified with a project that took all of his energy and all of his time. He concentrated automatically. But to the other and to the average person, Concentration is something that has to be developed. We have to gradually uh, gain control of ourselves. For he who controlleth himself is greater than he who taketh a city.
and this old statement is just as true today as it ever was. So the Indians and the Chinese and all these ancient peoples had their philosophic symbolism about the concentrational processes. And in the self-unfoldment book, we take up several of these uh, procedures. Always remembering that physical symbolism must in every instance be interpreted into its, might say, universal meaning. Uh, for example, uh, we speak in here, in one section, the description of the old Buddhist Ahat, who preparing himself for the meditative life or for the meditative experience, first seated himself and then gathered his robes about him. Now this sounds like a very nice bit uh, of thespionics, but it is really an entirely different situation. Uh, when the Eastern monk or the Eastern philosopher or the Zen mystic is told to seat himself in the law, it does not mean that he's going to bring up a chair or find a rock and squat on it. To seat oneself means to establish oneself. It means to place oneself on a firm foundation. And in the Buddhist symbolism, the old uh, arhats or the bodhisattvas are most frequently represented as seated in the open blossom of a lotus. Certainly no lotus was ever that size, but that has nothing to do with the symbolism. It is much better that way. The lotus is the symbol of the unfoldment of the universal mystery. Therefore, to seat oneself in the lotus is simply to establish oneself in nature, uh, to remove all conflicts or all inconsistencies uh, which make the earth beneath us an uncertain ground. To seat oneself means to resolve. And we are told that in the illumination of Buddha, in the deer park at Sarnath, now at the Bodhi tree at Bodhagaya, later he spoke at Sarnath, but the original revelation was at Bodhagaya. It is said that he finally seated himself under the bow tree, and he made an obligation or an oath in which he stated that he would not move from that place until either death released him or illumination came. He would not stand up again. He would remain there, seated under that tree, until he'd, either he died or the truth was made known to him. Now, the Bodhi tree, of course, is largely a symbolic device also, although that perhaps was some lordly banyan there at that time. But to be seated means to be firm, to no longer wander about. And to wander about may mean to move from one creed to another, or from one notion to another, or from one addiction to another. But to be, sit down and say, where I am, here I will receive the enlightenment. That there will be no more scattering of resources, no more hunting and searching and seeking, but the realization that all that we know and all that we need to know must come from within ourselves. That we, are, we do not gain anything by traipsing up and down the world, and we do not gain anything by changing or shifting the polarities of our own thinking every few minutes. To seek oneself in the law is simply to accept the to declare that it is our way and our guide, that it is our very present help in time of trouble, that everything we are, we owe to the law. Everything we need, we must derive from the law. Therefore, we take our position firmly upon the great pattern of the law, and particularly upon the two great laws which Buddha taught, reincarnation and karma. But we we'll suddenly rest our case upon the infinite plan of things and say here I accept and here I remain and here I shall practice the disciplines and I shall either achieve the end or I shall perish.
This final decision gathers up all of these loose ends and causes them to become reconciled in one purpose. Uh, that there shall be no more inconstancy or inconsistency in our moves or our methods or our means. Then the old Ahat is said to gather his robes about him, his vestments. Now the robes and vestments are variously understood in the order of Adanta or Tantra to represent the energy fields which surround the body. But they may also represent our other garments, the garments with which we adorn our intellectual and emotional lives. For our garments are also not only our bodies and our energies, but our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, our hopes, our fears. For all these, to a measure, clothe us with the vestments with which we appear before the world as we present the mask of the persona to those before us. So our temperament, our disposition, robes our inner life. So we gather our garments around us, can very well and did mean in Tibet and those countries, the reduction of waste of energy, the gradual drawing together of all of our abilities, all our energies, all our hopes, sitting quietly, established in the law, and conserving every resource and power which we possess. And then in very definite quiet to consider what we might term the concentrational procedure. Now what is the actual virtue of concentration? This has been a question uh, that has a great deal of merit in it for consideration. Concentration is essentially the control of action and even of conscious thought by a policy, pattern, or conviction of the will. Concentration, theoretically, can be achieved by anyone who has the tremendous degree of self-control necessary to accomplish it. If, however, we so interpret it, then concentration may or may not have any spiritual significance. Because concentration, which is merely an exercise of will, is not the end by which the Zen monk, for example, hopes to attain to the Parnavada. Concentration is itself a symbol, but it is a symbolic process rather than a symbolic attitude. It is a gradual means by which the person demonstrates or proves, if he practices it correctly, the proper method of imposing principle over personal conduct. Concentration, then, is one way of telling ourselves and proving to ourselves that we are no longer the slave of our own appetites and instincts that we have suddenly realized the true relationship of consciousness and body. That body is the faithful servant of consciousness. And as this faithful servant is one of the most valuable and important of all instruments. But if this relationship is destroyed, or if there is a serious mistake in our procedure, and body becomes master, then man's consciousness is ruled by a beast. The body becomes not the good ruler, but the tyrant, the dictator, the despot, the autocrat, controlling our soul by the autocracy of appetites. The body will not even be able to preserve itself in this way, because it lacks the unit of consciousness by means which man is able to direct body, but body is not able to protect itself. Therefore, when the body rules the person in it, we then have the individual ruled by the worst part of himself. Not because the body is essentially bad. This is not the case. 
but the body is essentially merely a self-preserving organism, perfectly contented to preserve itself at the expense of the energy which sustains it. It is irrational in that respect. But as the instrument of man, the body becomes a wonderful and useful media for the transmission and communication of knowledge, ideas, understanding, and experience. So our problem in concentration is to demonstrate more than anything else the fact that we can concentrate. The victory is not in the thing we concentrate upon, but the fact that we attain the power to turn our attention naturally, easily, and without pressure or force according to our own purpose. That we say, I am going to think about this for ten minutes. That we think about it for ten minutes without even a feeling of distraction or a desire to think about something else simply because we have decided that for ten minutes we are going to use the mind in that way. To start such disciplines at forty or fifty years of age is very much like trying to, co to correct a delinquent child in its late twenties. It is not easy. But it is still a problem that has to be done if the person ever expects to penetrate the veil of illusion that divides him from a world of principles and causes. So in our particular problem, the real end of concentration is not this browbeating, not this sitting with your eyes closed, your teeth clenched, and both hands desperately grabbing the chair arms, trying to think of God when everything else is coming along. This is not concentration, nor is it concentration to sit all day in some beautiful blue haze of memories, thoughts, and recollections, or dreaming about the wonderful time when we were initiated in the temples of Egypt in some summer land of our own imagination. This is not concentration. Nor is concentration the process of sitting with your eyes densely and tightly closed, demanding infinite supply. It is not the individual or sitting with a rigid determination that he is going to influence his friends, his neighbors, and his enemies. Uh, these are not concentration, because concentration aimed at the uh, at some material end, some accomplishment, which is going to aid us in the perpetuation of our pet illusions, has a, has no value as a concentrated discipline. The end is that we learn to graciously lead the personality. That we can detach ourselves from servitude to the body without hurting the body, without picking on it, without declaring that it is unworthy of us or that it is only an old carcass of some kind. This is not the purpose, nor that we should lock in a bitter battle between the ways of the spirit and the ways of the flesh. All of these things are wrong, and I've seen people go into the most terrible difficulties trying to nurse these attitudes. Because every discipline in nature, every philosophy that has dealt with the problems of life is gracious. Nature, in for conscious beings like the human being, possessing interior faculties, does not simply lambast these creatures. It works with them and through them, ever persuasively. And our punishments are only for those who obstinately refuse to see. They are generally given the seven and seventy different opportunities before punishment is really meted out. So our purpose in this whole concentration problem is gracious one-pointedness. Not that we tyrannize, but that we simply realize that we have a right to use these faculties and to determine how they are to be used. And that through our general studies and disciplines and thoughtfulness, 
through our philosophy and our religion and through the counsel of the great teachers from whom our essential knowledge is derived, that we know approximately how these faculties should be used. And we are going to try to bring ours into line with this picture so that when we say to the mind, think, it will think. And when we say to the mind, rest, it will rest. And when we say to ourselves, this is no cause of worry, we will not keep on worrying. Also that the instinct to worry or to fear will gradually cease because of basic thoughtfulness and understanding. But by concentration, as an exercise, we do achieve gradually this sense of orientation, this sense of leadership in the compound of our own bodies. Lack of leadership is what causes worry, fear, procrastination, mistakes, which lead in turn to further confusion. Whereas proper thinking, directed properly at the proper time, removes most of the causes of the troubles from which we must later suffer so miserably. So our concentration has as its primary purpose merely to get hold of the reins of these faculties so that we can lead them and direct them for their good as well as ours, but most of all for the good of nature and the great job and the great work that needs to be done. Now, how are we going to particularly practice this concentration? I've told you before many times, I think, of the delightful incident that was told to me by someone who had started a few concentration exercises. They said, you know, it's, I've just never been able to understand it. The moment I keep quiet for a minute and get just nicely started in my concentration, I itch somewhere. <laughs> Well, this is just about the way it happens. The moment the individual attempts to control himself in anything, he either itches or hurts. There seems to be nothing that you can uh, do to escape this procedure. And you'd be surprised at the successful people who have wonderful reputations for accomplishment, who are utterly bewildered at the thought of actually holding the mind under their control for one minute. It's just not even possible. Now with the mind so completely out of control, how can we expect our lives to be in any better condition? If we are the complete victims of whatever mood passes through our mental-emotional complex, how can we ever have world peace or individual peace? Plato, the great teachers, the great religious leaders have all pointed out the need of the individual to achieve a certain integration, a control of his own life. Now concentration uh, is a discipline that has to be adapted very largely again to the temperament of an individual. Uh, there are individuals who have used very strenuous procedures. There are Indian sects, for example, that will assign themselves some peculiar duty requiring concentration. And every time, through thoughtlessness, they fail to perform that particular duty, they simply take a knife and make a three-inch slash in their arm. And by the time they've made four or five hundred slashes, they become quite thoughtful. Now, this is a very extreme method, and we hardly advise it in the West. But the point is that these people so greatly value the concept of finally gaining control of their own thinking that they're willing to go to terrific ends to achieve this. They have realized what we have never learned, namely that this control is the basis of all forms of happiness that we seek that without self-control we can never be secure in anything. For the average person, however, simpler and gentler methods generally will work with patience. Now, we had the, in the years gone by, we've had the meditators and the concentrators uh, in huge numbers. 
and uh, I noted that it also became a kind of escape for people who were a little lazy. This concentration became the means of the great do-nothing. In fact, some reported to me that it was wonderful because they always went to sleep after the first two minutes. It became a kind of discipline in private indolence, and that was not the purpose intended. Also, concentration with a little imagination tossed in to season it could lift the individual out of the commonplace into an imaginary world and make a high-grade introvert out of him in a short time. He wouldn't even want to come back to this common world anymore. He would much rather keep on meditating until the judgment day. This didn't work. Actually, uh, the answer is that in controlling yourself, you must also control yourself. And uh, in uh, deciding to concentrate, you must also concentrate on not concentrating all the time. I found in working with people that, the, that each individual had a kind of starting ground. As Buddha points out, the long journey begins with the first step. And this is true in concentration. Most individuals will find concentration particularly helpful if either it is united with whatever religious devotion the person naturally is inclined to perform as evening prayer or something of that nature or that moment or two of, of dedication with which uh, the average person in Western civilization has already been rather well indoctrinated. Therefore, there are only certain things we would add to that. As we point out in this book, concentration ha has to have a certain element of work, a certain element of self-denial involved in it. Because if it is only just always doing what you want to do, it is not discipline at that point. You have to be much wiser before you always want to do what is right. Therefore, there should be a certain amount of discipline. I recommended, therefore, that the person who wished to concentrate would set aside or select, before he starts, a certain time, a time probably least likely to be interrupted, because he is fighting himself all the way, and there is no use making the labor impossible. But if he decides that at a certain hour in the late evening, or in the early morning, he is least likely to be disturbed. He must then set a time for his concentrational procedure. And I have always advised that the time not exceed five minutes. This is hard on some of my friends who think they only get a good start up to the first hour. But you cannot live that way without neglecting something. This kills the purpose of it. Such an extensive type of concentration tells us that this person is running away from life. And that isn't the purpose of it at all. And also, it would be a very difficult for the beginner to actually concentrate that length of time. Almost impossible. There's bound to be a lot of wool gathering along the way. But in two or three minutes, concentration can be possible. The person choosing a place, uh, his foundation, where he establishes himself, a fairly comfortable chair or a pleasant place where he is not likely to simply go to sleep. And then beginning the process of determining one-pointedness. Now in the beginning, one-pointedness is very difficult, especially uh, with, a, with abstract thinking. And I do not advocate what some have, namely the, uh, the setting of this point of concentration upon some chakra or invisible structure within the individual himself. I've seen this get into a serious lot of trouble. I know one individual or group of individuals who were trying to concentrate upon the pineal gland in the brain. Of course, they did not know how. If they'd known a little more, they would have gotten a third short circuit. They didn't get that, but they did get a number of headaches which were quite unnecessary. It's not good to fool with that type of thing at that stage. It is far better to select some concentrational device to begin with, uh, by means of which there is some help. 
in focusing attention. This is the purpose of the Eastern Mandala, the religious painting, which represents some phase of universal procedure. This is also one of the utilities behind the great religious symbols of the world, the symbols of the faiths of men, which is as instruments of uh, concentration uh, become uh, instruments of recollection. They enable the individual to draw upon certain resources within his own nature for thoughts, uh, for uh, visualizations relating to these symbols. And also, which is very important, they keep him from thinking about himself, which is not his purpose at that particular moment. If he thinks about himself or wanders off into abstract concentration, he is very likely to see something that isn't there. So it is better to choose some natural device or symbol. Now, the nature of this is not important. It is the penetration associated with it that is important. Some people like to uh, select living things, uh, flowers or plants. And uh, I've often felt that a very fine uh, concentration device uh, for Western man would be the miniature living tree, the bonsai tree of the Japanese. But it could be a little plant that you have yourself cultivated in your garden, which would make it all the better as a concentration symbol. Or if you do not have such facilities, then to secure a small potted plant and have it live with you. But this is not necessary, but this is one way. Uh, a simple little device, an image, a design, a work of art, even a beautiful picture in a book, can be the type of thing which simply forms a catalyzing agent. It gives you a little something to draw your attention with. You will find also that even with this symbolic help, it is not easy to hold the attention very long. Now the question arises also, how much should we whip this attention to force it to remain upon the object of concentration? I would say in all uh, common sense that the beginner will probably have to use a small amount of effort if he merely gives up the moment the mind wanders, he'll give up almost as quickly as he begins. He can't help it. Therefore, I would say that for a beginner starting out, if the mind wanders away from the symbol, that he may draw it back, not too forcibly, but with sufficient intensity to make it re-focus re, uh, upon the mood or the symbol or the idea involved. However, if the symbol or if the mind drifts away from the symbol three times in the course of a few minutes. I would say that after the third time it is not effective to try and draw it back. Then the person should simply uh, pass over that and go on and the next day try again. The purpose of the device of concentration is the regularity which can become inconvenient. The more you try to become regular in this the more often interruptions will intrude themselves. So you have to gradually exercise a certain amount of discipline. In the book, I have suggested that the individual should uh, accomplish his concentration time with not more interruption than once a week. That he may, to begin with, allow himself this interruption of once a week. But the rest of the time, in that he must have six days in succession or six days out of every seven without interruption. This may mean he has to cancel a social engagement or miss something on television or some other horrible calamity. But he must be prepared to sacrifice something. After all, all he is hoping to gain is his immortal soul. And he must sacrifice a little something for it occasionally. If the concentration discipline is gradually developed, then comes the problem of how we are to look at these symbols or this object. How are we to understand it? We certainly do not wish merely to gaze at it until we're cross-eyed. That is not a virtue. Uh, in spite of the reports of some teachers in that direction. The purpose of concentration is not to develop a glassy glare at the object. The purpose of concentration is to become 
increasingly aware of the penetration of this object with consciousness. If, for example, we have chosen a, a living thing, a tree or a flower or a little plant or something of that nature, the purpose of our concentration is to achieve a rapport with it, to become aware of it as a consciousness, uh, to attempt to understand it and the processes of life which are involved in it, to understand its livingness, to understand, as in the case of the plant, its growth, the unfoldment of life through it, and to gradually visualize within ourselves this growing thing as a symbol of the growth of all things. The mandala is always the symbol of a universal, until gradually we come through this concentration to the simple, dynamic, inner experience of the truth of growth itself. Another symbol might give us the dynamic of the truth of beauty, or the truth of order, or the truth of mathematical progression. Whatever the subject may be, the purpose is that the symbol shall unfold itself into a manifestation of universal law. That out of this concentration we shall become aware, more intimately and more directly, of the great sources of instruction, of knowledge, of life, and of reality around us in nature. Finally, all of the mandalas, Tibetan, Chinese, Hindu, even European, where we occasionally find them, are representations of the universe. They are symbols of the infinite processes of existence, and our purpose of using and using them is to become aware of this livingness that the symbol portrays. The uh, final end of the concentration is therefore a kind of prolonged, gently sustained attentiveness, in which gradually we make ourselves capable of receiving a connected report about life that this report is not broken up by our loss of attention. For the inflow of universal wisdom is never slowed or broken by anything except man's inability to receive it. Therefore, it is the breaking of the instrument of reception that cuts us off from the cosmic consciousness of things constantly. And the fragmentary nature of this instrument prevents us from tuning in at all without a certain amount of discipline. So discipline enables us to tune in. It enables us to turn our attention at will or according to need and to become uh, receptively expectant of the inflow of the truth of matters as this truth uh, is available to us at all times. Lao Tzu, the Chinese mystic, knew this. Sitting as a boy on the side of a mountain without a book, he found that all learning was available to him if he could receive. And that this reception meant the complete integration of his faculties. Not that they became wise in themselves or learned in themselves or that his mind became skillful in all matters and in all answers. The mind was simply the understander, the acceptor, that by means of which the incomprehensible truths of life were made comprehensible. The, servant of the, uh, the, ser the real use of the mind is not that it shall uh, express man's desires, but that it shall reveal to man the divine desires, the things as they are. Consequently, the mind is not really so much the servant of man as it is the servant of the infinite in man, becoming the instrument for the communication of the universal to the personal. Concentration is the setting up of the bridge. This concentrative process is a kind of antikaranas. It is the bridge which unites uh, the truth which we 
inwardly associate with the symbol and our own gradually unfolding receptivity to ideas. Thus I feel that uh, the concentration discipline has as its primary purpose merely to place man in rapport with the thing as it is. If he is making an engine or a machine or if he's driving a car, concentration of one kind makes him alert and careful and thoughtful in the driving of the car. Another kind of concentration, however, may make it possible for him to discover the law in the car. That every principle of the combustion engine is a symbol of a universal truth. And that this combustion engine is therefore also a mandala, which through contemplation and through simple concentrated focusing of energy may unfold to man certain of the greatest mysteries about his own nature and his own composition. Thus it is this process in concentration that the individual, through gathering his faculties, is able to experience universal truth in the most commonplace things, penetrating all appearances and forms of things, seeing always substance and essence when he so desires. He does not do this at every moment and make himself a bore to everybody. But he does have the capacity at will to say what does this mean and discover what it means. So he gains two ends. He gains the, the great and beautiful end of being able to say that he is free. Because the individual is never free while he is the servant of his own opinions. He is free when he can think when he pleases, as he pleases. And he is doubly free when he pleases to think that which is so. He gains a definite further important contribution because through this exercise he forms a bridge so that he is constantly able at will to become aware of importances. Now, I've, I know uh, several instances of this kind of importances. Years ago, I knew a little Zen monk who at one time was very, very anxious for no reason that I've ever been able to discover to see an American baseball game. Now, there was nothing much less Zen-like in appearance than the baseball game. But I finally took this little man and took him to a ball game and we couldn't have picked a worse one. It was one of those games which uh, practically causes the trained spectator to pick up the seats and throw them. After it was all over, I didn't know just how my little Zen friend was going to take on this, he was radiant. He said that game was the most beautiful example of Zen he had ever seen. To him, everything meant something. Of course, it meant nothing in terms of baseball. <laughs> but to him, it was all law. The way the man threw the ball, the way the man batted it, the way somebody else caught it or didn't catch it, was terrific. He saw a universe unfolding on the gridiron. Well, it probably is there, if you, if you want to study it. Because even the simplest game is based upon laws or the game won't work. You can't say that a game of bridge is not a highly skillfully developed formula. Unknown to those who play it and unappreciated to the individual who doesn't play it. But we cannot say that it has no message or no meaning. Uh, it depends upon what we can do to vitalize that meaning. And under concentration, the universe opens up into an infinite area of valid meaning. And all the doubts and fears and miseries and worries we've had about the universe dissolve. And in their places are these magnificent areas of experienced certainties. Thus concentration, I think, is a very valid discipline if it isn't overworked. And in the long run, the individual doesn't have to practice it at all. It becomes automa automatic. All disciplines 
all rituals, all ceremonies, are in a strange way themselves symbols of common experience. The individual prays for a few minutes each day until he suddenly really realizes that the ultimate prayer is his own life, recited at all times. Some people can only feel godly for five minutes, so they have to pray. Others can feel godly all their lives, and their life is a prayer. And the words they speak would mean very little in comparison to the nobility of the deeds that they perform. Concentration is the same thing. The individual concentrates by discipline because he doesn't know how. Once he has learned how, it becomes an automatic process to be aware. And to use faculties for awareness rather than for criticism and condemnation. And as soon as the individual gains this awareness, he gains with it not a closed-out universe in which all unimportant things are left behind, but a universe in which there are no longer unimportant things. But everywhere, experiences, which if understood become beautiful, become meaningful, and add to the wealth of our understanding, appreciation, love, and regard. In this type of meaning, I think concentration becomes highly valid. But concentration to get what you want, in the common sense of the word, I do not regard as valid. Unless what you want is simply the power to appreciate the beautiful. If we do not ask for things, but ask only as the old monk did, for the power, the insight, to see the good that is, then gradually the concentrated faculty develops, changes our lives, and makes us gracious, wonderful, and acceptable people. Thus the discipline actually becomes a, a sacramental way of life. Never difficult, never heavy, never boring, never unctuous, never sanctimonious but simply the quiet ability to get much more beauty, glory, fun, and happiness out of simple things than we've ever known before. This is the childlikeness of Mencius. This is the natural faculty of man, which until contaminated, sees good, God, and truth in everything. This concentration, if quietly developed, I believe would be beneficial. Now I think we better give you all a chance to try it. So we'll be seeing you a week from tonight. <laughs>